they were recording. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so Tim thought about it in 2017, and Frank was <laughs> saying it was one of the best. We had this funny exchange where he said it was one of the best talks he ever heard, and he said, but don't, you know, what would you say? Not, no pressure, something like that. So uh, anyway, this is this moment. Um, but this is a really fascinating suit I've just loved for years, and I just had this thought to share a little bit about it. And how many people are familiar with it? You, you, not at all. Okay, anybody else out there? Nope. Okay. It's pretty wonderful, and it kind of it really speaks to who we are here in a lot of ways here in 2023. And in fact, some of the things that people brought up. Um, and whoops. And uh, hang on a second. And I'd suggest five ways that is helpful because it shows us kind of how we can be, how we need to be attentive about our practice, how we can kind of be fooled into thinking we're doing something that's helpful, but not really pay attention. And we need to get a little, a little help or urging or something to move in a direction that's fruitful. It also offers a way, a model of how to energetically respond to our practice and our life and what we got to work with. Because Bahia was something else in terms of uh, uh, almost like ferocity and how he dealt with things. And it has this, the, 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 the actual part of the sutta about the practice is this beautiful little succinct description of what the practice is. That's really wonderful. And then the sutta also reminds us of how fleeting this opportunity as in lifetime is to practice. And then lastly, it really is amazingly reassuring about the efficacy of how, about like this works, you know, where it takes people. So there's a lot in this relatively short and beautiful sutta. And so it's a story as suttas are, and it's about this one person, Bahia. And when you read between the lines in the sutta, he was probably 2,600 years ago in India, seemed like he was pretty, he was sort of middle-aged. He'd been around for a while and pretty privileged. He wasn't on the bottom rungs. He was kind of kind of up there. And he lived by the seashore, very specific. He lived by the seashore, which is really interesting. According to the sutta, I'm going to read a little bit from the sutta. He was a, a recipient of robes, alms food, lodging, and medical requisites for the sick. He was worshipped, revered, honored, venerated, and giving homage, given homage. Now, there's no sense that he was a Buddhist practitioner, but he was some sort of meditation practitioner, is what it seems. But he had doubts about whether his practice was working, and he just wasn't sure. And it turned out that some relative of his was a deva in the god realms, and he expressed these doubts, kind of put them out there. She appeared. She appeared very compassionate. But she, she tells him, actually, that he was barking up the wrong tree. And this is like this, one of the harshest little things I've ever read in the suits. It's sort of more blunt. It's probably a better word. She says, you, Bahia, are neither, neither an arhat, nor have you entered into the path of arhantship, which means an awakened person, an arhat's an awakened person. You don't even have the practice whereby you would ever become an arhat or enter that path. So that must have stung. Right? It's like, damn, really? What are you going to do with that? And he might have sulked. I don't know. He might have sulked. He might have gone and buried his sorrows. He might have done a lot of things. But he actually 
he actually decided to do something. He doesn't waste any time. And I think that's important. You know, it's really something like, what do we do if we find out or, or, or have our own self-revelation that we're barking up the wrong tree or we've got a block, something we've got to work with? You know, what do we do with it? And we can just move, just move. Okay, going to change. See something to stretch in, some area to stretch in and start doing it. So he's this great model for that because he, he it says in the sutta, without hesitation, it says in the sutta, without hesitation, Bahia asked her, but who in this world is actually an arhat or has entered that path? So he didn't, he didn't waffle, you know? He asked her. And I think that's important because, you know, in a sense, we're all guiding ourselves on the journey. You know, everyone's, it's all, you know, within the Dharma, in one sense, it's a clear direction, but within another sense, everybody's working at it. Everyone's doing the best they can and they're making choices. And, you know, how do we work that? Like, do we dawdle or do we move ahead and keep moving ahead and keep moving ahead? And you look at, you know, it's funny, I just thought of this, but in Thailand, two of the greatest 20th century masters, Ajahn Buddhadasa and Achan Cha, both of them completely self-initiated. I mean, I, as far as I've been able to figure out, Ajahn Buddhadasa didn't actually really even have a teacher. He studied the suttas. He went off into this grungy little temple, abandoned temple in the middle of nowhere out in Surat Thani down in the south end of Thailand and just started practicing in his grotty little place in the middle of the jungle and just did it, you know? He just did it, did it, did it. And Ajahn Cha, he uh, spent, he, uh, what's it called, Tudong. He spent a number of years just Tudong wandering through the forest and being threatened by tigers. He just had this, almost this self-initiating ferocity. And he only spent two days with Ajahn Mun, who was his teacher. He just showed up, spent one day and left the next day. We spent one whole day and, you know, arrived one day, spent a day and left the next day. That's it. And he had this amazing kind of download from that experience, but he didn't hang around. He just really pushed himself. So in both those cases, two of the greatest time masters of the 20th century, they were incredibly self-initiating and, 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 you know, using the Dharma, but figuring it out. So that's part of what I love about this sutta, because that's, that's what he did. And he, so he kind of sets a, sets a gold standard, Bahia, for persistence. And he brings this sort of fiery determination because we'll see what he does here. And there's also this, the fact that life is short and death is certain has really been embedded in this sutta. And I've had this, this Zen, this evening gata is called on my garage wall. Now it's in the new garage. I look at it all the time. It says, let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us should strive to awaken, awaken, take heed, do not squander your life. So that is worth taking in. Evening Gata, if you can find it on the web, sitting there on my garage wall, if ever you come over, I'll show you. And it's really kind of putting back on the rails, you know, a million times, or just sort of in the middle of some silliness, go, oh yeah, you know what you got to do. And then what's also interesting about the sutta is it sort of strikes me, it's, it doesn't have labels. Like 
there's a, there's a whole big section in the Majjhima about Brahmins and Buddhists and kind of how that fits together and a whole sort of interchange. But he's not really, in this case, he's not labeled as a Brahmin. I think he must be. He's not, looks like he's not Buddhist tradition, but he's not labeled as such. And the Buddha is called the Awakened One, but there's no sense that he's the Buddha either. So it's sort of like, it's sort of like funny equality going on. It's not about becoming Buddhist or not, or something like that. It's this sort of interesting freehand to it that I think is pretty, pretty helpful, but is the idea of arhantship, taking, up, taking us toward awakening is right pivotal to this. So just think, here he is, sitting by the seashore, just asked if he was squandering his time. Deva said, yep, you are. So took that in, then he said, well, okay, is there anyone out there who's awakened? And she says that there is. Where did she say that? She said that there was, I, I uh, guess I didn't get that quote. She says, yes, there is. Uh, there is a, an awakened, oh, here it is. She says that there is a rightly self-awakened arhat. He is truly an arhat and teaches a dhamma that leads to arhatship. So, okay, he wanted to uh, find out about him. And she said he's in Sravasti. And this is interesting because Sravasti is, I've been there, it's way up in Uttar Pradesh, up in the north end of India, kind of, you know, how India is sort of like that. It's up, up there and the seashore, it's far away. And so this is a kind of about a quest. And, you know, that's a big deal going on quests, like, you know, it's part of our mythology. Lord of the Rings, Muslim people go to Mecca, you know, everyone goes on quests and, and, and the journey, the difficulty of it is almost part of what, what makes it important. So there's a physical journey, a journey of the heart, a letting go, a stretching that all happens. And in the sutta, it says that Bahia was living in Supakara. And so I did some research because I Sort of the geography of India is always kind of interesting to me. And it looks like this is on the west coast, so near Mumbai, which is formerly Bombay, which is like 900 miles from Sravasti. So this is no big deal. So this Deva just said, yeah, he's 900 miles away, by the way. Have a nice day. And that's, so that would be like, you know, he didn't let that deter him. He just started going, it says, in the sutta. He traveled on foot. And depending on the translation, it says he didn't stay overnight in one place more than a night. So he went straight through for maybe a month to get 900 miles. So how many of us, just because Adeva said so, would decide to walk as far as Salt Lake City? It's a haul, right? I right. You might, you might. If there was a Deva, there you go. That's, that's true, that's true. But it was a big decision, a big stretch. And I know that area of India a bit. I mean, to go from Mumbai, you go through Maharashtra, it's a real rugged area of India. It's not just like, you know, you think of India, it's sort of a lot of times you think of the Ganges Valley and it's all flat and there's farmland. This is like mountainous and rugged. It's not the Himalayas, but it's just, it's gnarly. So must have been a hard journey, but he did it. He did it. And there must have been tigers, you know, and bandits and the whole deal 2,600 years ago it was not the populated India of today, it was mostly jungle and forest. So it's pretty impressive. So he arrives, Jetavana Monastery, that's in Sravasti, that's, a, if you ever get a chance to go, that's the uh, 
place where the Buddha did 24 rains retreats. It's extraordinary. Just really beautiful, very quiet. Hardly anybody goes there because it's 50 kilometers from the nearest railroad station. Very hard to get to. Even pilgrims don't go very much, which is a real boon. And he gets to Jetavana Monastery. And he gets there early in the morning. So that's really interesting. So did he, did he travel all the night before? Or did he get there early that morning? And I don't know, you know, but it's sort of early in the morning is real interesting that that's when he gets there. And he asks, where's the Buddha? And someone said, oh, he's out on alms round. Now, for those of you who don't know, in traditional Thai forest tradition, certainly, and in this tradition, uh, monastics, they can't eat afternoon. They can't store food overnight. They can't grow food. So they have to go out on alms round with a bowl and people offer food and they have the one meal before noon. So that's it. You don't pull that off, you don't eat. And I know a lot of monks who have, because of various plane connections and things, missed it. You know, they missed the noon deadline, so they didn't eat that day. But it's, it's significant. So he's out there, the Buddha's out there, and he sees him. He found the Buddha on alms round, moving with great calm, his mind at peace, tranquil and poised, with the restrained senses of a great one. It's a sense of like, he got it, like, oh, wow, he's got it, you know? This guy is awakened. This guy is what I want to be. So Bahia the intrepid was inspired by this and he goes up to him. And even after this month long journey, he didn't hesitate. I mean, it's amazing. Like if he just was overnight, you'd think he'd be tired, but no, he just, he just went for it. And he throws himself at the Buddha's feet with his hand, his head at the Buddha's feet. And he says, teach me the Dhamma, O blessed one. Teach me the Dhamma, O holy one so that it will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. Now the Buddha could set boundaries and he said no sometimes, or he said not, this isn't the right time sometimes. This is one of those times because he was in the middle of alms round and there's other responsibilities. There were probably villagers lined up, gonna put food in his bowl and all this kind of thing. And so he said, well, come back later. I'm in the middle of alms round. This isn't the right time to teach the Dhamma. But Bahia didn't get diverted easily, even when the Buddha was asking him to wait a bit. It's kind of like going up to the Pope and saying, you know, I need an audience with the Pope. And he said, well, excuse me, I'm busy. So no, I really need an audience with the Pope now. It's kind of what he did, but he did. And he says, teach me the Dhamma, O blessed one. Teach me the Dhamma, O holy one, so that it will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. And then he pleaded the second time and he says, but holy one, it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Buddha's life or what dangers there may be for mine. Please teach me the Dhamma, blessed one, so that I may be happy and free. And this is powerful, you know, because, you know, we often teach, we often think that when you practice, sometimes I suggest if you're feeling like same old, same old about practice, think, oh, this might be the last time. I do this a lot when I'm sort of, find myself spacing out or droning or something and say, you know what, dude, you may die tomorrow. Step up now. And it's kind of what Bahia is referencing, how precious this moment is. You know, we need to seize the time to move forward. And just proving this point, just in recent months, literally recent months in this geographical area, two significant people I know, well, one of them happened in England, I take it back, but they're here now. 
Two significant spiritual people I know had strokes. Two different people had strokes out of the blue. And uh, they're both having a real hard time. And one of them, I want to name a name, I guess, but one of them's a very, very vigorous Dharma teacher, younger than me, and kind of person that does climbing. He goes out on long solo hikes, you know, backpacking, all this stuff, really good shape. And just boom, he had this stroke, and now his left side is paralyzed, and he can hardly balance. And, you know, he's, he's, he's okay upstairs, but it's a huge thing to adjust to. It just happened in the middle of the night or something. I'm not sure when it happened. And the other person, a dear friend of mine who's a Carmelite nun, Sister Leslie, and Catholic, but she had a sudden stroke out of the blue, totally unexpected, that it just decimated her memory. I mean, she's still physically kind of okay, and she's still the same radiant, amazing Leslie, but she can't remember anything, hardly. I mean, it's just, and it's really freaking her out. Point being, we can't assume. Just because everything's okay right now, we can't assume. And, uh, and that's what Bahia, you know, I mean, to his credit, he was like insisting with the Buddha, we can't assume, and the Buddha gets that. So as is traditional in many areas of the suttas, when the Buddha is asked three times, we'll say yes, because there's that expression of intensity. But it's good to pay attention to this in our own practice, you know, not to take it for granted. We never know when things will change. So we have this opportunity to use this lifetime. And I've heard from several people that are just here, it's really great, you know, people that are really working, and like you folks, that have been working on the practice outside, but that you sort of want to keep, keep it moving because you know life is short, right? And uh, yeah, this is good. So the Buddha, because he was on alms round, he gave this very brief teaching. And this very brief teaching is really amazing. It's super helpful. And it's been studied for years just because he had so much of the essence in there. He says, well then, Bahia, you should train yourself like this. Whenever you see a form, simply see. Whenever you hear a sound, simply hear. Whenever you smell an aroma, simply smell. Whenever you taste a flavor, simply taste. Whenever you feel a sensation, simply feel. Whenever a thought arises, let it be just a thought. Then you will not exist. Whenever you do not exist, you will not be found in this world, another world, or in between. That is the end of suffering. I do not read Pali, so I'll just say this is translated somewhat differently by different translators. So it's kind of interesting to wait around and see how they do it. This is Tanisharo Biko, uh, and this was kind of helpful in some ways, so I kind of use this. There's a lot packed in here, and it's kind of like Zen-like, you know? It's so brief, it's so succinct about what we do. I kind of love it. Uh, and people have looked at this a lot, this particular, this, this suit is very well known just because of the, because of the brevity and the kind of essence of what the Buddha told Bahia. So you probably picked up on it, but he's talking about the six sense doors, touching, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and mind. And that's really, that's how we, you know, contact phenomena is through the six sense doors. That's our portals. So he's saying when you contact, just do it. Just be aware of that right then. 
and we can, the question is, do we impute an eye who is smelling or tasting? That's where this journey really takes us. What do we do with that eye factor? Because when we generally experience these things, we generally think, oh, I'm smelling or I'm seeing. Our, our language is like that, right? We sort of emphasize the eye. And he's saying, just do the, just see, just see, just see. That's an amazing practice. And this is the, he's getting at the fundamental ignorance of that there is an inherently existent I, one of the key unwindings that takes us to freedom, to see through that. And just as an aside, he stresses this in the second sermon, there's right in the beginning of his teaching career, is the first sermon, the second sermon, and the third one, third one's a fire sermon, first one's when he talks about um, the Eightfold Path in the Middle Way. And the second one is when he really starts to talk about this whole question of concretization of I or freedom from it. So it's a really powerful second sermon about not-self. And I'm just going to jump over and quote from it for a second, because he talks about, in this case, he's referring to the what's called the five skandhas, the five different aspects that make up our sense of self, like sankaras that we were talking about or body. And in this, he says, here's one, he says, so bhikkhus, any kind of form, whatever, whether past, future, or presently arisen, whether gross or subtle, whether in oneself or external, whether inferior or superior, whether far or ne near, must, must with right understanding how it is be regarded thus. This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. And maybe that sounds a little convoluted, but he's basically saying, any kind of form we contact, it's not us, ultimately. Or any of the aspects of our personality, it's not us, ultimately. And this was very pivotal, right in the beginning of his teaching. So this is coming out of, from a different direction. That's part of what's the beauty about the Dharma, is it kind of, things come out from different directions and something will click with you at some point. So in his teaching to Bahia, Bahia, he's making the same point, but he's telling He's telling him how to practice to reach the goal. He's talking more about how to practice, and he's using these six sense doors as the kind of the vehicle for it. And, you know, think about how we do things. I mean, when we're seeing, we tend to think, oh, I'm, I'm looking. You know, we, we, we bring our eye into it all the time. But to just, just see, to just break through that and just see is amazing. What, what do you think? Any thoughts about that? in my head is just how okay theoretically get it yep but how do you experience that and it isn't i mean if, that's a great question and it is what mindfulness is because in the very process you know where the breath as as i was mentioned ajahn pasano said the breath is not the point awareness is the point and we're aware of what's arising and passing and you know for all, most of us we probably spend some time on the breath and we spend some time on memories and planning and all these different things and to just be aware of them as they come and go, that it's not really me. It's just phenomenal. You start to see, it starts to become clearer and clearer, just the crazy randomness of it, you know? And he even says, as an aside, in that second sutta, there's one place, I don't know if he says it anywhere else in the, in the, in the Pali Canon, but he does say there, essentially, if, if your body was yourself, then you should be able to just tell it what to do and it would do it. Or if your mind was yourself, you should be able to control it, but you can't. 
So the fact that you can't means it's not you. You know, it's, 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 it's all this stuff is happening all by itself. So, you know, the fact that you can't control it really suggests that it's not inherently you. Does that make any sense? Sort of. Sort of, yeah. How do I get through the idea that I'm not just a conglomeration of, like, my experiences and thoughts and memories? Uh, how do you get to it? No, no, no. How do I um, get, get out of that? But, that is a, but that's the truth. You are a conglomeration. Oh. Yeah. But I thought that I'm not. <laughs> no, no, it's like you're, no, that's perfect. You're a conglomeration, but therefore there's no inherent you anywhere. If there's a conglomeration, just a whole bunch of interest interrelated parts floating in space, where's the I? You can't find it. All there is is a bunch of intersecting connections, but there's no I there anywhere. I'm not the whole all-encompassing. <laughs> yeah, it's just a whole bunch of factors. Yeah, arising and passing and, and, and you know, with um, causality in between and connections and things being sparked, but there's no real I-I there anywhere. Can I ask something? Absolutely. Um, I just wonder when it gets to a point of something in your life that is extremely threatening to your like body, your survival, mm -hmm. um, that's where I don't know how to stay in this frame of mind. Right. No, it's so beautiful that you bring that up. There are actually some suttas like totally about that. And I can't quite remember, but that's where the kind of the, I don't know, the elegance or the thoroughness or the reality of being mindful about conventional reality while you're also seeing through into the nature of things and there are there's literally some places I can't remember, I wish I could remember that probably Frank might remember where um, there's a situation where basically you know there's a there's a biku and as an elephant charging this biku and he's saying oh it's ultimately not here so it doesn't get out of the way and gets run over by the elephant or something like that and the, and the Buddha says dude is it the same little kind of thing right Yeah. Or that they said, but you can't take my consciousness. Okay, well, that's a different kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So I've heard different takes on it. Yeah. But, but, the same thing, right? but this particular, in terms of the stuff Lee's bringing up, I mean, there's a time to get out of the way of the elephant, you know, even though we know, ultimately speaking, there's no inherent self, but still, if it's an elephant going to run us over, we should get out of the way. You know, and I think both things are true, and that's part of how we navigate. I mean, the Buddha did, you know, he existed in the world. He, did, he didn't step in front of bullet carts. And if any, he, he, he dodged rocks, but that's another question. <laughs> Does that make any sense, Marilee? Am I saying your name yes. right? Mary? Uh, Mary? No, just Mary. Is, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I got you. Okay. That's okay. Yep. Um, yeah, I guess it's just learning how to maintain, uh, like, you know, a deeper presence when you're going through things like that. Than, than identification with the body. Yeah, and you know, may, maybe we should, if you ever want, have a side conversation. I get a sense there's a lot to talk about here. Um, so I sometimes do one-on-one -on -one stuff with folks, you know, if that'd be helpful. Um, oh, okay. But, um, you know, when there's, when a lot's 
coming up. And sometimes a lot comes up and there's pain attached and things like that. On the one hand, there may be, you know, things we need to do to deal with it or on a conventional level. And then at the same time, we can start to lighten it and see through it a little bit on an ultimate level. And both those things are kind of happening in parallel in this Vipassana tradition as part of why, you know, a lot of a lot of teachers are, are also therapists, but they're separate but parallel worlds and kind of complement each other. If that makes if that yes. makes any sense. Okay, thank you. Okay. So Lee Lee Brasington, in terms of this, the way the this was framed, he translates it a little differently. It says, in seeing will be merely seeing, in hearing will be merely hearing, in sensing will be merely sensing, in cognizing will be merely cognizing. It's kind of emphasizing the action of it, you know, sort of how we can approach this. I thought that was pretty nicely put. So the Buddha gave him this amazing instructions to this is very insistent Bahia just to be to do that you know just to see when he saw and it's this incredible simplicity and I and you know when we're you might you might just you know bring this idea into your practice somehow this sort of just what he said and see what it works that when we're practicing there's just the sensation of breath arising and falling or just the sensation of a thought arising and falling but there's no I there. Just these things are happening. And we can start to just having this focus, you know, just when we're seeing just see, when the thought happens, just the thought it can help peel away this sense of I. There's a kind of immediacy about it. It's really helpful. And the Buddha, on some level, the way the Buddha was, he knew that Bahia was ready to awaken. Tanasaro Bhikkhu, he, he, uh, the Buddha tells Bahia how this works, right under, or uh, he tells him what to do, and then he tells him how it works. And Tanasaro Bhikkhu translates in a way that is easy to take in. He says, when for you, there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sense in reference to the sense, only the cognize in reference to the cognize, then Bahia, there is no you, in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of, well, suffering. He translates dukkha as stress. So suffering, stress, but it's just that it's really precise. You know, when we're just seeing the scene, there is no you there. And this really relates to our, our mindfulness, like we were saying, you know, it's a real way to look at what our mindfulness practice is. It's one of these things, you know, we can think of it in terms of the three characteristics. This is sort of another angle that is harmonious and in a sense saying, saying the same thing. But this takes us to Nibbana. Not suffering is Nibbana. We can see through all the tangles and it's ultimate freedom. So Bahia, you know, he was ripe and there's Lots of interesting tales in the suttas about how in the middle of some discourse, 
everybody awakened, that kind of thing. So a lot of right people. Um, but it's interesting that he was right just because of the practice he'd been doing, even if that practice wasn't perfect, because he had this intention, he'd been working at it, and, and he was changing. So anyone who thinks, oh, my practice isn't any good, you know, as long as you're practicing, we're growing and changing, and it starts to clarify, it starts to sort itself out. You know, that's kind of why I was encouraging folks, don't worry about it, it'll sort itself out, and you'll keep finding your way ahead. So even though this deva told him, dude, you're completely off the rails, he kind of wasn't. Because look what he, he accomplished, he met the Buddha, and, and then he wakes up. Because it says, upon hearing this brief explanation from the Buddha, Bahia was immediately released from all forms of suffering generated by clinging desire, aversion, and ignorance. So poof, he woke up there. And the Buddha went on his way. Don't you like that, the poof? Yeah, that was like a, like a product, doesn't it? But yeah, it's not a product. Yeah, so he just awakened right there. That is so cool. From these, and maybe did anybody else wake up? Maybe not this time. I'm just thinking that it seems like our mind uh, is designed to make connections and to put things in categories. Is that our conditioning? Uh, it seems like part of our brain design yeah yeah it's just that right? person, yep, that. so in order to poof happen we actually have to take certain steps because judgment <laughs> comes right away right? yeah so, we gotta gotta see through it no you're right skillfully missing this part of the stories <laughs> and that's what that's perception you know that's the, the third skanda that thir third sense of self-making is just what you're describing how we categorize things and all that yep yep and it turns out but he was right, his sense of urgency, because within a few hours, he got on the wrong side of a cow protecting her calf, who gored him and he died. Oh, yeah, he was taken out that afternoon. And in fact, it says that the Buddha came back from alms round and there was Bahia dead on the ground. So, so amazing, you know, that, and it doesn't take very long to go on alms round and come back. So it was literally like an hour and a half or something and he got killed, so, huh. So he, this urgency he had was like well-placed. And that's part of what's so powerful about this story. You know, he walks 900 miles, meets the Buddha, has this incredible teaching, wakes up, and then dies. If you think about conditioning, you've gone the 900 miles and then it's still Huh? You haven't gone the 900 miles and may not have Well, maybe not, but I don't know. There you go. Right, right. So the Buddha... <laughs> The Buddha instructed the monks to take the body for cremation and build a memorial saying, your companion in the holy life has died. And that's kind of beautiful because it doesn't say anywhere that he was a monk. It seems like he was not a monk, but he calls him your companion in the holy life. I just thought that was kind of, kind of touching. Um, and, and the monks didn't quite know what to think about what had just happened, understandably. This was kind of radical. And they asked him, one, one, one monk, it says in the suttas, one monk asked, Bahia's body has been cremated and the memorial built. What is the destination of his future state? And the Buddha said, monks, the Buddha said, Bahia of the bark cloth, he wore bark cloth, was wise. He practiced the Dharma in accordance with the Dhamma and did not pester me with issues related to the Dhamma. Monks, Bahia is totally unbound and free. So 
here the Buddha is proclaiming that he had awakened in that brief period prior to the goring. So, uh, you know, there's really something there, like how do we, how do we kind of practice in a freedom and not get down stuck in the weeds, but just keep opening it up, just keep opening up and seeing how we turn ourselves towards freedom and don't get too down in the, in the tangles of it. That's such a funny thing about, did not pester me with issues related to the Dharma. I'm not quite sure how to translate that, but I'm partly hearing like Dharma politics because there's a lot of situations in the suttas where monks get all tangled up in some very bizarre things about how bowls are cleaned and have great problems with each other. So I think Bahia just went for the essence and the Buddha is appreciating that. So, you know, it's, I think just in closing, what's beautiful about this is it really inspires us to take jumps and move ahead with the kind of vitality that he did to be totally unbound and free. Inspiring because he didn't have to go through like the eightfold noble path. Like he didn't have time, but he was able to directly see that and experience that, and then awaken. Right. So it yeah. sounds like there is a direct path, almost. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to turn the recording off just.